Aaron and I want to start with a really big, heartfelt first bite thank you. We have been so encouraged by your kind word, your messages, your glowing reviews of First Bite. This has been a labor of love for the last year and a half, and we we are grateful for y'all being on the First Bite journey with us and supporting us because we, I mean, we work full time and this is, this is a full time gig on top of it. And we do it with joy because we understand that the world of early intervention pediatrics needs evidence in it. So we sweet talked the folks with speechtherapypd.com and as a thank you giveaway, we have come up with a, a free pod course subscription. So once we hit 130 iTunes written reviews, we're going to pull another name out of the hat, probably with the assistance of an ever so handsome goose and a bear. And that person will get a free pod course subscription. So over 175 hours of continuing ed plus 19 new continuing hours each month. And there's a new episode every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, every other Thursday, and the short course, nine series long, all things ethics with Elise. And that's our way of giving back. So thank you. So please keep the reviews coming. We only have a few more to go, but once we hit 130, then we will pull that name out of a hat. Happy 2020. Thank you for joining us on the journey. And Seriously, y'all rock. Thank you. Hey, so by now, I'm hoping that you've heard about the brand new PodCore subscription that Speech Therapy PD has rolled out. For $79 a month, you get over 175 hours of ASHA continuing education with 19 new episodes a month. That's fantastic. Well, they want to make sure that you also know we have a brand new coupon code. So the coupon code is F as in first, B as in bite, followed by the number 20, FB20. And that brand new coupon code will give you $20 off the PodCore subscription. So you get 175 hours of continuing ed plus an average of 19 new hours a month, all for $59 a year. And we cover everything from early intervention to schools to adults to ethics. So be sure to type in F as in first, B as in bite, and then the number's 20. Enjoy your coupon, or as my kin folks say, enjoy that coupon. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite. Fed, fun, functional resources for the pediatric clinician. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MSCCC SLP, the All Things Peds SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention, right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, in Cola Town, South Carolina, and guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light and hope to the world for the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, best practice for running a private practice, and all the nitty-gritty details involving feeding and swallowing by interviewing the subject matter experts themselves. 
we bring the data to you. Every fourth episode, I am joined by the lovely Erin Forward, MSP, CFSLP, a Yankee transplant who actually inspired this journey and who also walks the wild, woolly, and sometimes sticky walk of early intervention with us. Sit back, relax, and watch out for all the squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. So today's episode falls in the fed and functional categories, and it's an often hotly debated topic. When is eating a no-go? So today's episode may not be a fun one, but y'all, this is the info that we need to best serve the little ones that we have been called to help. Okay, I get it. We all want to feed our babies, whether that be our own personal tiny humans or the patients that we treat. But, and no pun intended here, um, as last week was Skisha, and I know that my butt is grown in circumference. Good, Skisha. But sometimes we can't feed them. And that sucks. So yeah, I'm going to own it. This one's a hard one. So what are the signs and symptoms? What are the clinical diagnoses? What are the red flags that tell us that we need to pick up the phone and have that crucial conversation with the little one's physician about their NPO status or additional oral supports at the very minimum? Today, we're going to address all these concerns. Hopefully, in the next hour, we will have laid out a roadmap for when we should embrace NPO status, technically meaning nil per os, and keeping that mantra that fed is fed is fed is fed, whether it be an NG tube, orally, a G tube, a J tube, and focus on the quality and not the quantity. Y'all remember that even with some of these devastating diagnoses, we can with physician support and written orders, and with family caregiver support, offer quality of life pleasure feedings. Because at the end of the day, we are here to bring evidence-based practice wrapped in joy. And if it includes a little bit of water after oral care for joy, well then y'all bust out them Dixie cups, or better yet, bust out your tiny red solo shot glasses that I'm pretty confident a fair few of us have stashed away. So, uh, so Aaron, on that note, big transition. Have you thought out yet, friend? <laughs> Barely. How cold is it up there? Well, when I got home was the coldest day that they've had this winter. And it Wait. was so cold that the driver's window of my brother's car shattered on its own. Wait, it just like, like in the movies? <laughs> like in the movies. I went to drive it in the morning and look inside the driver's seat and there's just glass everywhere. Well, how freaking cold did it get? Um, below zero without wind chill. Oh, good Lord. Honey, this is why, um, we live in the, um, the South because my Jane Magnolias are in full glorious blooms. The daffodils have popped and my blue bonnets and bluebells are on their way up as well. So, um, Please tell your brother my condolences for his car window. Uh, and then that just means you need to come back to Cola Town, friend. That's all that that really means. <laughs> uh, okay. All right. Well, that's fun and awkward. And we're going to make a less awkward transition. Ta-da! 
Okay. So we're going to tackle today's episode on the need for MPO from cardiac, gastrointestinal, and then respiratory status, um, only because I tried to go in at it alphabetically. Uh, but these are all equally important, and for the most part, they all overlap. It's complications in one area, such as surgery, can negatively impact the others. But again, for you know, organizational statuses, I went with um, alphabetical order. So let's start with some of the cardiac considerations that support an MPO status, either temporarily MPO or permanent. Um, do you want to go first or you want me to go first? Okay, cool. Um, okay, so um, we always try to bust out as many research articles as we can to share the wealth. Um, and uh, one of the biggest impacts of um, cardiac surgery is vocal cord dysfunction after cardiac surgery. So there was this really great article, and it's slightly um, it's slightly older. It's from 2007, so we're just outside of our 10-year window. But it was vocal cord dysfunction and feeding difficulties. <clears throat> excuse me. After pediatric cardiovascular surgery, um, it was in the Journal of Pediatrics, Volume 151, Issue 3, September of 2007. And it said that a fair few of patients had um, post-operative vocal cord dysfunction um, confirmed by a laryngoscopy. All right, so what does that mean? Um, uh, well, when they went through the subject sample, um, there was at least 2% that were um, had to be placed uh, on an NPO status because of complications. Uh, whether and that was like a permanent NPO status, but the numbers went up <clears throat> uh, even temporarily. Um, it said that overall, a swallowing study confirmed dysfunction in 27 of the 29 patients, uh, and a G tube was placed in 18 of the 38 patients. But um, it, and unfortunately, in that particular study sample, two patients actually did pass away. But that's just it. We, how many patients do we have that are, are cardiac babies, especially with a diagnosis like Down syndrome where they have PDAs um, or Tetralogy de Filet with our uh, 22Q11? When they go in to do the cardiac repair, that lovely little vagus nerve, he's a wanderer, one of the side effects can be vocal fold paralysis or paresis. So they have inability to... Um, close and protect the airway. Um, sometimes permanent, sometimes not permanent. And then there's also just laryngeal trauma on intubation. So when they go to actually um, intubate, we can have um, endematous tissue. They can have um, uh, paralysis or paresis on intubation, especially if it's like a stat surgery, like they're rushing, it's not planned. Um, so that was one of the articles that I found right out the gate. Erin, what you got, love? Well, I think going off of our cardiac babies, it's hard because for a lot of them, they are either hoping that like if they have a PDA that it will close up or they're waiting. A lot of these kids will leave the NICU or leave the hospital and won't be able to get surgery until they're closer to like six months old. 
Because they have to have a set amount of weight on them in order to survive. Right. And so it's that balance of like how like some of these kids may have like an NG. Some I know there's like some kids that are so I had a patient that has had Down syndrome and it's so medically fragile that they didn't even want to do a G-tube until the cardiac surgery because they didn't want to have to put her under more than once. Um, So then you're kind of in that battle of do they have an alternate means? If they don't, then they need to eat somehow. And, but they have, if they're waiting on surgery, they still have this hole in their heart that can impact a lot of their feeding and their ability to like not fatigue on the bottle or which can increase their risk of aspiration. So I think these, you have to look at the full picture of like what resources they have, what's the longer term plan for them, because that can, you know, there are some kids where we can't just say NPO. You have to kind of work with the physician as far as what the best option is for them because their picture, there are so many other things that are impacting their overall medical status. Yes. Okay. So some of the cardiac considerations, um, and you can find this list on feedingtubeawareness.org. And I'm just going to rattle off some of them. Um, ASD, atrial septal defect, um, uh, uh, atrioventricular canal defects, uh, cardiomyopathy, hypoplastic left heart syndrome, hypoplastic right heart syndrome, um, PDAs, the patent ductus arteriosus that we already talked about, vitrology of fillet that we already talked about, um, tricuspid atresia, truncus atresiosus, ventral septic, but I'm going to say this, ventricular septal defect. Okay, so um, with a lot of these, with a lot of these cardiac considerations, um, the patient can be MPO also because the heart is working so hard to pump. Um, I heard referred to as cardiac um, anorexia. uh, which is where the patient looks emaciated and malnourished as if they're anorexic because the body's burning so many calories um, just to pump the blood. And like you said, they have to get so big in order to, um, or they, they have to be so many months old in order to simply survive the surgery. So uh, I've had kiddos that have been um, given an NG tube and told that they have to be NPO because they burn more calories. Yeah, they need to get their nutrition. Yeah. 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 So like and that's and that's a hard one. Especially when, say for instance, their swallow is fine, right? So they're swallowing great, but um they uh they just can't um uh they Sorry, I hear the boys in the background. Y'all, it's a home day. Thank you very much, South Carolina school systems. So, like, we're multitasking. Um, the little one just um, yelled out, die, Imperial Forces die. So they're definitely playing Lego Star Wars in the background. Um, I completely lost my train of, th- train of thought, Aaron. Help me regroup here, woman. <laughs> well, it's like you said, if they're trying, if the goal is nutrition, 
it's difficult then to tell a family like from our standpoint their swallow is looking fine but their overall picture like we need to get them to gain weight that's the most important thing and I think there are things that you can do with like in speaking with a physician like can we do 10 mls once or twice a day just for some sort of practice and nutrition and quality of life exactly I think I struggle because I've been looking at trying to find research on like we know like very prolonged MPO status can definitely impact swallow and oral motor skills because we know practice is important but like for some of these kids that it's not years of NPO it's a month or two maybe up to six months like what is the impact of that? I mean, I'll have a lot of physicians at like worry about their oral motor, you know, if we make them MPO while they're in the hospital, like what is that going to do to their oral motor skills? And I'm not usually too concerned, especially if it's like a less than three month old that still has their suck reflux, but like, I don't, and it may, I'm still digging into the research on it, but I feel like there's not too much information on like how long can, and every kid is so different, but like, how long can a kid go being MPO before it starts to impact their skills very significantly? Because like that's also something that we consider more so with like the bottle, I think. Eventually when they transition to cup, it's... Okay, so I, I think it has to do... You hit it right on the head. Every kid is different. And each kid that we see has a unique etiology. So yes, we're talking about cardiac considerations, but you have to take that cardiac consideration in light of what was the original, um, what was the original defect? Was the cardiac consideration secondary to a genetic condition, or was it just a random, like a genetic condition that would cause hypotonia that would cause other concomitant etiologies? Mm-hmm. So. I have struggled finding literature. So folks, if you have something out there on this, please send it to us, tag us, um, email us. But you can do it all through First Bite. There's an Instagram page and a Facebook page. Um, But um, uh, also one thing with these super teeny tiny ones, you can still work on the non-nutritive suck. And they make the little medicine pacifiers. Mm -hmm. Um, It looks like a a pacifier with a shot glass on the back so that if the patient is NPO, uh, you can speak with the physician about using express breast milk in the medicine pacifier because if the patient's NPO but we're doing quality of life pleasure feeding or we're doing, you know, just a few trials a day, there is research to support that breast milk, in the event that it's aspirated, uh, is less likely to cause an aspiration pneumonia, especially after good oral care, right? It's it, our, the beautiful thing about breast milk, right? So I've even seen um, research to support folks using express breast milk to help with um, conjunctivitis, especially with the little newborns when they get the, it looks like little newborn eyebrow, um, mm-hmm. eyelid crud, and I just think that's amazing and beautiful. Um, Two other things uh, that we need to consider that would result in an NPO status, um, uh, tachycardia and cardiac hypertrophy. So tachycardia, incredibly fast rate of, uh, uh, of heartbeats that can result in, um, uh, um, Aaron, I can never say this word right, tachypnea. I'm saying mm-hmm. it right now. Beautiful. Yeah, tachypnea. 
So elevated heart rate will result in elevated respirations, which simply make it difficult to catch your breath when you're trying to nurse from bottle or breast or introducing purees. And that increases the likelihood for an aspirating event, whether it be on um, uh, preambule or non-preambule food or food and liquid or mm-hmm. um, saliva. Well, um, and, go ahead. Also, I think, especially with like our NICU babies that are just learning to eat, we're playing this game of we want to introduce, like if they're age appropriate, we want to introduce these feeding experiences. The team a lot of time wants to introduce these feeding experiences because a lot of times for the time, the point when these babies get to when they're ready to have the bottle introduced, most of their other um deficits of prematurity are starting to improve and feeding is like the last thing for discharge um but because they're learning we don't want to make this a negative experience because they're building those neural pathways for feeding and that's super super crucial so if you're you know having either tachycardia or Brady's when you're feeding, um, um, when your heart rates are, like dips very low, which can happen a lot of times with these babies, especially our cardiac babies, um, that then creates like continue if that's continuous, like if these babies are having tachypnea and Brady's while they're feeding, you're continually building those pathways in your brain that feeding is a negative experience and then they can become aversive and I think also our kids that have well we'll go into respiratory but um kind of going into that feeding matters had a position statement on the point of the position statement was to talk about the use of like preemie nipples with our term infants. And, you know, a lot of people think slower is always better. Like if they're on a slower, slower flow nipple, that's going to be better for them. But they talk, right. They talk a lot. She talks a lot about these, um, compensatory strategies that these kids will develop that can impact their feeding down the road like creating more muscle tension because they're having to suck more. How like we hear that clicking a lot with these kids um, that we assume is like a tongue tie, but then a lot of times if the nipple's too slow, that can just be them like getting too, like trying to create that compression. And I think it's important to think about like, especially with our kids that are so young, it's a balance, but we want them to have good practice. So like if, if they're, like you said, having so much tachypnea and they're breathing so hard, they're probably developing these maladaptive strategies to not aspirate, which can then impact their overall feeding and performance when they're not on respiratory support, when they're more stable from like a state um, standpoint. So I think it's not just, you know, introducing that skill. You, you, especially with their kids that are so young, we have to be so careful because every feeding experience, they are developing their central pattern generators and those connections. And so we want to make sure that it's as positive and as 
like they're, they're building that skill as it can be. Otherwise it down the road can have so many negative impacts. Yes. Yes. Okay. So you touched on so many different things and I'm trying to process and absorb all of them. One of them is very near and dear to my heart. And you were talking about that clicking mm-hmm. and how we assume it's a tongue tie. Y'all, this is a big squirrel, but hang with me. Um, Dr. Greenhouse, she sits on the National Academy of Pediatricians and is a past president of the South Carolina Academy of Pediatricians. Uh, she, we had the pleasure of listening to her speak last week at the award ceremony at Skisha. And she put this slide up on um, that said that Tongue tie surgeries have increased tenfold between 1997 and 2012. There was approximately 1,200 procedures in 1997 versus 12,400 in 2012. That there was a um, a study completed on 115 babies that were referred to a specialty center, and of the 115 babies, it was determined that 63 percent that had had the tongue tie, the, um, the frenulectomy, lingual frenulectomy, it was unnecessary. It went so far to say, I think it was that less than 15% were actually clinically indicated and the remainder between that 15% and 63%, um, it was inconclusive evidence to prove either way. But mm-hmm. 63% of them said that it was in fact unnecessary. And with unnecessary, also insert the terms um, dangerous. Uh, our dear colleague Leslie that works down at MUSC has seen where tongue ties have gone bad, where the patient had an undiagnosed obstructive sleep apnea, and that after the tongue tie mm-hmm. was cut, the patient, she's had a couple patients that ended up having to have a um, tracheostomy placed because they did not realize that the tongue was going to fall posteriorly into the airway and completely occlude their air. So when you hear the click, let's not necessarily just assume that that's a tongue tie. Let's also, mm-hmm. especially for our post-preemie babies, assume that there's a whole host of other things going on. And um, we really cannot recommend slow-flow nipples and ultra-preemie nipples unless it has um, been uh, analyzed on an instrumental swallow eval. So again, that's where that's where we're supposed to collaborate between uh, the home health clinician and the hospital clinician. Right. Um, and yeah. Okay. So well, one second. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. We're going <laughs> on tangents. I love uh, this. But love also this so with the tongue tie, and this is just like my bias from where I've been and there, and just like specific patients I've seen, but a lot of times we assume and I don't really know how I feel about like the posterior tongue tie. To me, it doesn't, I don't know. I like haven't dug as far deep into it, but like to me, a lot of these posterior tongue ties that people talk about are probably just kids posturing from reflux or like developing that protective mechanism from trying to have the reflux come back up and it looks like a posterior tongue tie. I think a lot of our kids, like, I remember we had one patient come in and the the kid's tongue would kept going to the roof of their mouth. And the one of the other therapists that was working with them, like wanted to work on these exercises to move their tongue back down. And I remember my supervisor looking at me and she's like, why do you think this kid's tongue is at the roof of their mouth? And she's like, close your mouth, 
try to keep your tongue at the bottom of your mouth and breathe. And I was like, well, that's not, you can't do that. They're just trying to breathe. It's like, look at them overall too. I think a tongue tie can be a quick fix, but then we'd have these kids that would get their tongue clipped and they were so used to suck, you know, suck, swallow, breathe with the way that their tongue was before with their frenulum that then their tongue got clipped and they had no idea what to do because they didn't have that same control. So then they had more issues with feeding down the road because they had developed their suck, swallow, breathe coordination without their frenulum being clipped. So like there were a lot of issues with that. Okay. Moving on. No, absolutely. Um, And folks, trust me, Aaron and I are going to be hitting up a whole tethered oral tissue discussion. Um, uh, let's let's put that on the docket for April because I think I pegged this for cranial nerves for March. So let's do um, oral tissues in April. Sound like a plan? Great. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good Easter present. <laughs> okay. And the rotten tomatoes will be thrown at us. Moving on. Okay. So um, last one that I just want to touch base on for cardiac congestive heart failure. Uh, not something that we typically see, mm-hmm. but the catch is if you have a little one that is sent home with a couple of PDAs or a underlying cardiac condition with the goal of putting weight on, and I have had this happen with a little one who had Down syndrome, mom didn't, um, and again, we have poor communication between early intervention therapist and the hospitalist and we the do. physician. We don't get medical records. So there's a reason why every single speech therapy session I say, so have you started any new medications? Have you had any new doctor's appointments this week that we need to know about? Why? Because, well, goodness gracious, I I walked into one house one day and the mom goes, well, they started us on the new drug, but I got it picked up at the Long's. I was like, well, what was it? And I called the pediatrician. The kid was starting Lasix. The kid had three PDAs in their heart, was in congestive heart failure. I had no knowledge of this, but I contacted the physician and I reached out. So the signs and symptoms that we're looking for to say, please, one, okay, carte blank, every, or carte block. I don't, I'm not quite sure the fancy word there, but you know what I mean. For every single patient on your caseload, establish the continuity of care. Call the physician, talk to their nurses, and ask for access to their medical records. Tell them, hey, here's my HIPAA document, fax it over. Here is my eval, fax it over or hand deliver it and say, I have so-and-so on my caseload. Is there anything that I need to know? I really need a list of current medications. I need a list of medical diagnoses and therapeutic restrictions because if you are not doing that on your end and then you feed a kid because you did not recognize the signs and symptoms of increased shortness of breath, um, the kid starting to lose weight, the uh, extremity starting to turn blue, especially with a kid that has um, tetralogy day fillet. Those are all cardiopulmonary considerations because the two are intertwined because the vagus nerve is intertwined the whole nine yards. Bad things could happen for that kid. And ultimately, it's your license. Ultimately, right. it's on you. If you walk in the door, whether it be to their home, to the clinic, or to that hospital room, and you don't feel that a patient is safe, because of the signs and symptoms and look at the whole child sitting there or laying there before you, then stop. The first part of our code of ethics is do no harm. And this is tricksy for our cardiac kids because they change and they fluctuate from day to day, from uh, 
activities that cause exertion and um, common illnesses. Um, a head cold for us may be a head cold for us, may increase work of breathing, may increase um, heart rate, and it can spiral. So, soapbox. Dun, dun, dun. How's that? Is that good? Did we, yeah. did we cover all? I, I always feel like. We never cover all the things, but. I know. We do our best. <laughs> okay, yes. So, um, do the best. Do, do your best. There it is. All right. So, let me, let me switch my screen. I only have 400 slides up. Okay. Let's move downstream. Ha, ha, ha pun intended. Christian's really been into dad jokes lately and he's been busting out some like special dad jokes. And so they're in the back of my head. So moving downstream, let's tackle some GI considerations. What are some indicators that a patient should be either temporarily or permanently MPO with respect to GI? Erin, you want to start, babe? Um, sure. So <laughs> I think GI for us, like, work, get, have a, try to have a great relationship with your GI or the GIs that you're working with with your patients. Interprofessional Be practice, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, because as we always say, respiration comes first, but if a kid isn't tolerating their feeds from a GI standpoint, they're not going to want to eat. And so, like, a lot of our I think a lot of our kids from a GI standpoint, it's less of, you know, we talk about cardiac with like their overall state stability with GI. It's like really focusing on not building an aversion um, mm -hmm. because if a kid isn't tolerating their feeds and you're giving them food orally, that's the only part that they can control. So they're going to refuse orally because it hurts. Yes. And so a big thing to think about with our GI kids is what if they're on a tube? So like, we'll talk about kids that have feeding tubes first. Do they are first, is it an NG, a G or a J tube or a GJ? If it's an NG, you'd assume it's for more of a short term. So why are they on an NG? Wait, NG tubes are clinically indicated for six weeks or less. Um, doesn't always it. happen doesn't always happen but I've had kids on NGs for six months to a year that's um I heard out in California that Stanford is giving recommendation for a year um with an NG tube prior to and it was their GI department making those recommendations mm -hmm. but again we just got done talking about negative learned associations you try breathing and swallowing around an NG tube and all the complications that can come with that. And, and you have a kid that likely already has reflux. Yes. And then they're going to exacerbate it. UES is still, yeah, everything's open. Sure. Yeah. So again, NG tubes are supposed to be for six weeks or less. Fact check it. Get on feedingtubeawareness.org, Feeding Matters, and advocate for your kids if there's a breakdown in communication and it goes longer. Sorry, squirrel. No, you're Go. great. Um, <laughs> If they're on a G tube, they're tolerating the feeds to their stomach. Mm -hmm. If they're on a J, then they're not able to tolerate them and they're having to have them continuous feeds. So you have so many things working against you if they're on a J tube and you have to understand like why they're on a J tube. Because okay, a J, let me a J tube, it goes into the second portion of the intestines, the jejunum. Okay. And your jejunum is where your metabolic caloric uptake and absorption occurs. 
So the reason that it's on a continuous drip is that it's um, bypassed the stomach where it's broken down and it's bypassed the duodenum, which is the first portion of the small intestine, which is where um, the digestive additional digestive enzymes from the gallbladder and liver kick in. So the formula that goes in through the J-tube into the jejunum is broken down at such mm-hmm. a level that basically it means everything upstream isn't working or isn't working the way that it should. And it has to be on a continuous drip because it's not, um, you cannot bolus feed a large quantity into the J sec, the jejunum. Otherwise it could rupture. So it's not like where you can like bolus feed right. um, like eight ounces into your stomach. I mean, you can, but it's not like you can do that into your J tubes. Like, or mm-hmm. it would, it would kill your intestines. Bad things would happen. So, sorry. Nerd fact. Just wanted to explain that because that's a question that we get. We get a lot of Instagram messages on that one. And please know that we do answer the Instagram messages, but that's a pretty common one that pops up. So mm-hmm. go, babe, go. So, but so if they're on a J-tube, you have to dig into the why of that. Because if there's issues further up and that's why they can't have a G-tube, then that's going to impact their ability to eat orally in general because their GI system can't handle it. So that's a that would be a point to really talk with their GI and say, you know, can we do any sort of pleasure feeds? Like is our goal a lot and for these families, I think we need to understand our role and a lot like I think it's really important to talk to the families about what their goals are because Speech may not be like feeding at certain points in these like very medically complex kids journeys may not be their biggest goal or it may like a kid that has is on continuous feeds because they're not tolerating any of their formula. Maybe they're figuring out why they're not tolerating it. Maybe, you know, they just I mean, there's so many things that can be impacting that. But you you need to talk to the families about what they want. A family may really, really want their kid to sit at the dinner table and be able to have like two tastes of formula with a spoon or may want them to have like dips of like, or a family may say, Hey, like we're so overwhelmed by all the other medical aspects of what we're working on with this kid. Like, I don't really feel that feeding is, is necessary right now. And that in itself is warranted for MPO status. Um, I think that like always, always, always ask your families what their goals are, because yes, we can make recommendations till we turn blue in the face. But like, we also have to understand that when you're working with medically complex children, we maybe, you know, we're the feeding experts. That's what we want to work on. But that a lot of times we're not necessary at certain points in their like medical. Okay. So I have a couple of thoughts. When you're looking at the issues upstream, delayed gastric emptying, delayed GI motility, gastroparesis, other conditions that could cause um, the need for um, a G-tube or a GJ. And a GJ, I don't think we explained that one. A G-tube, GJ-tube is when your body can handle bolus feeds through the G-tube, often done during the day, Mm -hmm. but it needs um, intense calories. So the J-tube is typically run overnight. So that's the the difference there. Um, Abdominal migraines, chronic diarrhea, 
hold on, my list just moved because of course it did. Um, cyclic vomiting syndrome, mm -hmm. um, dumping syndrome, where it just runs straight through. Um, exocrine pancreatic insufficiency. Oh, this one is really um, uh, new and um, prevalent. Um, um, so with uh, exocrine pancreatic insufficiency, it's where the pancreas is not creating enough digestive enzymes to actually help break down the food. So a lot of these kiddos end up presenting with like really bloated stomachs and it's, it, it, and it's crazy. I just found out that there's a new GI physician in town, which I'm really excited about, and they are doing a partial transplant of a pancreas. So hang with me. The details that I've got so far is they're going to remove one of my patients, part of their pancreas. They're going to take it out. Mom goes, they're going to beat it with a tiny medical hammer. And I'm like, I'm sorry, what? She said, they're going to beat part of this pancreas with a tiny medical hammer, send it through a centrifuge, pull out certain bits and pieces that are good, and then inject that into the liver. And that will help the liver take over the job of creating some of those digestive enzymes. Isn't that amazing? Oh, I'm so excited. Science is so cool. Okay. Um, we talked about gastroparesis, Hirschsprung's disease, necrotizing enterocolitis and short gut syndrome. Oy vey. Okay. Oh, yeah. So short, short gut syndrome. All right. Folks, want to talk about being an idiot? I thought short gut syndrome was congenital. Because when I first started really working in the world of home health, the two kids on my caseload, because you know how they come in waves, Erin? Like you get yeah. a couple cases of this. Yeah. The two kids that I had that were working with um, shortcut syndrome were both congenital. One of them was a microcreamy that popped out. Mom, dad was rushing mom to the hospital. They literally hit the train tracks going way too fast. And the baby popped out of her tutti ta at like 23 weeks. And um, they had not had really good um, health care or any treatment of the pregnancy beforehand. And the baby's intestines were born outside of his body, um, along with missing some organs and some complications. Uh, you were talking about quality of life. That little guy's quality of life. When they sat down at the table, he was my little one that... Um, uh, the guardian wanted the baby to just eat four green beans at the dinner table with them instead of one. And that was his goal. Dude, that was a great quality of life goal. The rest of his food was offered through a combo GJ tube. Um, all right. But most children that have um, short gut syndrome are actually not congenital. It's acquired through necrotizing intracolitis, which is death of gut. Um, it's, it's, what is it? The watershed area between the duodenum and jejunum section of the small intestines. Uh, there's something about the, the blood vessels. They change there from like digesting to absorbing and, um, and, and it makes it like susceptible to, uh, basically anything. Yeah. And what is, what is the thickener? That was recalled or they had to change do you remember the name of that thickener simply thick maybe uh, i don't know yeah don't quote me on that one yeah no it so. was simply thick um i can see i could see the logo with the flower i just couldn't remember what the name was thank you 
um, simply thick had xanthan gum. And the xanthan gum, you know, da, 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 I can talk, I promise. The xanthan gum thickener, uh, and there was a position statement by Asha, but I don't have it handy right this second. But the, the xanthan gum thickener was actually a contributing factor in causing necrotizing enterocolitis in infants under the age of one, especially in the preemies, which is one of the reasons why in the NICU we're not supposed to use xanthan gum thickeners or thickening agents in bottles. Um, so we talked about Hirschsprungs on here, um, rumination, sandifer, um, ulcerative. All our esophage, I mean, if a kid has an esophage, like a tracheoesophageal fistula, they have esophageal yep. atresia, you know, our kids that have EOE. I mean, I know it, that's, I think parents, in some places, parents can decide if they want to do a full elimination diet or not. I mean, I've had kids mm -hmm. that never got a feeding tube when they found out they had EOE, which I was surprised by, but I think every place does it differently, how they mm -hmm. treat it. Um, but yeah, there's so there. And, but I think it's important and it's hard when you don't get medical records, but it's really important to understand the why behind their feeding tube or their GI issues to know, cause that can impact your recommendations is it's a short term they're recovering from some sort of surgery or we're going to do surgery soon or is this really like they're like they have gastroparesis that they may never be able to eat by, take mouth. Full, eat by mouth so like yeah. that's going to significantly alter your recommendations yeah um my other thought um F-Pies and food allergies. Mm -hmm. As soon as you said EOE, oh, wait, jackhammer esophagus. Oh, my gosh, y'all, there's so many different etiologies. Um, esophageal echolasia, where the esophagus doesn't open. Complications from anisins and duplication, which is when they get, like, a massive stricture above the UES, and then they can't actually have the food go through the esophagus. Um, uh, esophageal impaction, secondary to strictures. Um, uh, motility of the esophagus. I'm trying to, there's like so many different etiologies. And the most interesting part is when we first get the kid that has the behavioral feeding aversions, it's like, a, and I, please know I'm using air quotes with like a totally sarcastic eye roll. Um, but we may get them as like, hey, this is all behaviors. And then you get them to the right doctor and it's not, it's so many other different factors um, that would require the G-tube, J-tube, all all mm -hmm. the different things. Um, and with the um, with the gastro um, thought process, a lot of our little ones that have cerebral palsy. I know we didn't cover neurology, but like this is where like neurologic impacts um, stroke. Um, it can impact the enteric nerve system, the nerve system of the GI tract, which would warrant, uh, a, you know, a feeding tube. So there's there's that factor as well. Wait, I have I've been um, there's this amazing article. Um, bum, 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 let me go to the top of it. Um, it's it was nutrition issues and gastroenterology series number ninety eight. It's called Nourishing Little Hearts, Nutritional Implications for Genital Heart Defects. And it talks about heart defects and GI issues at the same time. Um, it was in August of 2011 by Brandis Roman. 
And y'all, that article is fantastic. Um, she even goes through and discusses um, medications, um, cardiac medications that will impact um, the GI issues. Um, it's, it's, it's a beautiful article. So I just have to throw that one out there. Um, okay, I had a few other um, articles. This one right here, Clinical Practice Guideline for the Management of Communication and Swallowing Disorders Following Pediatric TBI. And you're like, Michelle, that's no, that's not GI. But it was actually um, had a lot to do with um, uh, GI complications, post-traumatic brain injuries. Uh, if, and you can find it if you go to, um, it's on the ASHA practice portal. Uh, summary, um, if it's on the evidence-based maps for pediatric dysphagia. So you can go straight to the maps and it will take you there. Y'all, there's a reason why we pay all that money in dues because they literally pull everything for us. So um, uh, check that one out. It was by um, Morgan, A. Morgan. It was from 2017. It was actually, you'll appreciate this, Erin. It was from Melbourne, Australia. <laughs> but, Melbourne. Um, was, wait, what? They say it's called Melbourne. They pronounce their cities differently. Oh, well, my little southern Kituk has added a whole bunch of diphthongs. It's all right. It's right up there with me saying that we color with crowns, which is apparently what you wear on your head and you don't color with. <laughs> Dogwood Dawson. Dog, Dogwood agrees. She prefers Melbourne. <laughs> okay. Was there any other... Um, gastric implications. I'm sh I know there's something else that we've missed, but is there any other one off the top of your head that we're like, oh, we really didn't cover that would result in MPO? I don't think so. I think just, I think in some cases you're um, arguing to the physician for them to be MPO. And I think in some instances you're not arguing, but you're discussing with the physician those like quality of life pleasure feeds. It just kind of mm -hmm. depends on the situation and if they can even, like with some of these that we talked about, they their oral feeds aren't an option. Yep. Yep. Okay. All right. Hold on. Let me go back to switch my screen around. Okay. All right. So we've got like 13, 15 minutes left. So let's res wrap up with respiratory status. Okay. Um, and, and we talked, a, I mean, this kind of goes hand in hand with cardiac, but what are the indicators that a patient should be in PO again, either temporarily or permanently? Um, a big one is respiratory support. Okay. Um, let me find the article that is... I have too many of them, but it's in I know. somewhere. Y'all, please know that when we do this, like, I wish you could see my screen. I've got, like, 14 windows open, and I'm, like, cross-referencing between everything. Oh, here it is. But, yeah. Um, and I think every, like, every hospital, every physician is different on kind of what their cutoff is for respiratory support and oral feeds. Um, some places, it's, like, at least for little ones, it's two liters of high flow and below they'll do feeds and above they won't. Um, there's Say that again. Say that again. Some two, two. liters of high flow and below um, 
a lot of places is that's when they'll that's their cutoff for allowing oral feeds. Okay, and I've also seen when um, uh, oxygen levels um, uh, have to be above ninety mm-hmm. or ninety-two at the lowest. Mm-hmm. Sorry, yep, um, a lot of like from a a feed to feed standpoint, a lot of nurses won't feed if their respiratory rate is like above seventy or eighty. Mm-hmm. It kind of depends, um, and that's just from a like a state if a kid isn't regulating their vitals let's not force that a bottle into their mouth um there's an art there's not a lot of articles on feeding on higher levels of respiratory support because of the ethics behind it um there's one article called effective nasal continuous positive airway pressure on the pharyngeal swallow in neonates that was in 2017 um by there's a bunch of names that I'll probably butcher, but Ferrara, um, Bidwala, Sherp, Herzada, Barley, Islam, Rosenfield, Crowley, and Hannah. Hannah, I don't, I'm sorry if any of these names are completely butchered. Um, but they studied infants receiving nasal CPAP. Um, and if they were tolerating at least 50% of their feeding orally, they were included in the study. Um, what they found was that the uh, them being on nasal CPAP significantly increased their incidence of deep penetration and aspiration. Um, so much so that they stopped the study. That's insane. Because of all the, because of the effects that they were seeing immediately. Um, Mm -hmm. And as we know, a respiration comes first and a lot of these respiratory supports, the goal of the respiratory support is to keep your airway open. It's essentially blowing your airway open to help you breathe. What do we want to do to swallow? Close our airway. So... (laughs) It really just doesn't seem super ethical to then put food on top of it that we know is going to blow into their airway. Um, Wait, I just need a clap for that one because I see that one a lot. And I'm like, four liters high flow nasal cannula and oxygenating to 87. I'm like, no, I will not feed your tiny human because it is not safe and not clinically indicated. We can work on... um, swallowing and advancing to PO once respiratory status is safe. And often what I have found is that pulmonologists and pediatricians are not aware of what goes on at home, and they may not be aware that the family is continuing to feed or and or force feeding, creating more negative memory associations, even when they've been told that they are in PO. And because of respiratory status. Right. So, right. And yeah. like we said before, if they're building these compensatory strategies to close their airway because this is not tip like this, the respiratory support they have is not typical for a, a child learning to swallow, like, like building their oral skills, building their pharyngeal practice. And so they're building these strategies 
that are compensatory, but they're not helpful then for when they, if they are off this oxygen support. And you just have to think too, like, what's most important? Like, it's harder, it's a lot harder if you have a patient that has been feeding orally and they're having acute illness and they're on respiratory support. But in that standpoint, you're hopeful that this respiratory support is more acute. And so you're having to look at how, you know, hopefully they won't be NPO for too long just until they're weaned off respiratory support. If it's a child that's been on respiratory support since they left the hospital, then they probably haven't, you know, built those positive experiences with feeding yet either. So you, but you have to develop that slowly so that they continue to be positive if they're appropriate. I mean, let's not Nasal CPAP is is a pretty, very, very high flow oxygen, and that's just not safe mm-hmm. for any mm-hmm. child, even if they have, prior to that, had good oral pharyngeal skills. Yep, yep. Okay. Um, on a ventilator. Let, let, let's touch base on that one. Um, yes. If the patient is on a ventilator um, and they're working like, um, especially with like Passimir valve and they've participated in a clinical swallow study and they were given clearance and they're within the set protocol and parameters, then yes, you can do quality of life pleasure feeds and even oral feeds. Why? Because there's a significant body of research. Please go check out the, um, uh, ASHA practice portal. There's a really good article. Um, they have um, information there through the tracheostomy and ventilator dependence um, on the practice portal. Um, there's one article, International Pediatric Otolaryngology Consensus Recommendations, Routine Perioptive Pediatric Tracheotomy Care. They actually give guidelines on how to proceed with PO. Um, uh, and, but yes, Yes, you can. Um, now, here's, uh, um, here's, here's the catch with that, okay? If they are presently intubated, no. <laughs> like, <laughs> no. Like, if they have all the tubes going down their mouth into their airway to blow open their airway, no, we cannot do oral care there. If they've had a significant change in baseline, like, say they were... Um, uh, sent home because I, I have the little one. They were sent home. They have the ventilator in place, hospital bed in place, and um, you know they're doing their two liters of oxygen, or and one little guy's doing three liters of oxygen through the vent. But everything is hunky dory. Then yes, but when they have a change in baseline, if they get an infection, if they get sick, if they're lethargic, if they're not responsive. If they do not attend to the bolus presentations because they are um, either medically sedated or just having a bad day, no, then we do not do feeds. We don't feed the kiddos then. Um, Sorry, I had a computer glitch. Um, Next catch. And, and this is one that I have, um, it's very tricksy in the world of home health with our vent kids. 
it's hard to make it to the doctor's appointments and it's hard to have that continuity of care. Uh, when I've got a kiddo that um, is that compromised from a, uh, when I have a kiddo that is that compromised, um, I would prefer and personally feel more comfortable, especially when there is a physician around, um, and, or not a physician, a home health nurse around. And, and that's just, that's just me. Like I would prefer that the home health nurse be there to offer supports. And for some of our kids, that quality of life, pleasure feeding, if it only happens when the home health nurse is there because they are so medically complex, y'all, I don't want to be the one that accidentally misreads a cue because silent aspiration happens and we are not, I mean, that's the thing. It's silent aspiration. I would rather utilize the interprofessional practice and have team support in the event of, so that way they can um, assist with, um, you know, if unfortunately there's a code. And let's be honest, for some of these kids, that's a that's a real concern. Um, well, and if you don't, like, know, especially in home health, if you don't feel comfortable doing something, that's valid. So mm-hmm. be mindful, yes. you know, if you're not comfortable, you shouldn't be doing it. Yeah. So that's important. I mean, I had a patient that had laryngospasms pretty often. And so I, I mean, the home health nurse was there most of the day, but I didn't feel comfortable doing it without her there because I am CPR certified, but not something I want to be doing. Um, Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Okay. So some other pulmonary considerations. Um, if a patient has bronchial malaysia, it's um, a term for weakening of the cartilages of the bronchial tubes. It's pretty common um, in children, um, like our medically complex children under the age of six months. Uh, it sounds like a um, strider stirter inhalation, exhalation. At, y'all, they can't clear their lungs in the event of aspiration and unfortunately tend to work really hard to move their airway. Uh, so that can be a consideration for um, uh, NPO and um, uh, moving to a, a alternate means of nutritional status. Bronchiopulmonary dysplasia, it's a form of chronic lung disease that affects newborns, um, typically results to damage to the lungs caused by a mic- um, vent and long-term use of oxygen. Um, they, it, it's also known as like chronic lung disease and it's mm-hmm. another one of those where they will probably need to be NPO or have supports. Um, pulmonary atresia, um, uh, it's a form of heart disease, but hang with me in which the pulmonary valve does not form properly. It's congenital. And it's the um, valve that opens on the right side of the heart that regulates blood flow um, from the right ventricle to the lungs. So pulmonary atresia is one of those overlap between cardiopulmonary. Um, To wrap off a few, um, pulmonary hypertension, pulmonary hypoplasia. We're running low on time because we always do this. Restrictive lung disease. Um, either congenitally or as um, complications post-surgery. I have a little girl right now on my caseload who had um, uh, a VSD. She has uh, 
not Chiari malformation. Um, she has uh, DeGeorge's 22Q11, also known as, um, uh, well, it's 22Q11. It goes by a couple different names. But anyways, she had cardiac repair. And, you know, they cut her from, as mom says, top to bottom. And when her body healed, she had um, uh, so much scar tissue that her lungs cannot inflate fully and it gets worse. So she's really, really prone to uh, pneumonia, not aspiration pneumonia, but just pneumonia because she can't move the air out. And she's actually getting ready for surgery to help uh, open her lungs back up. Um, and they're going to stretch all the um, scar tissue around it. Um, surfactant protein deficiency. Um, didn't you have a little one that had that a couple years ago? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, but, I mean, there's so many. Oh, my goodness, y'all. This barely scratches the surface. Um, so please check out feedingtubeawareness.org. They have a ton of resources available to you. They go through and they explain the different um, diagnoses. I'm trying to go through the last of my articles that are open. Um, oh, there was this really awesome article, Nutritional Practices and Their Relationship to Clinical Outcomes in Critically Ill Children, an International Multi-Center Cohort Study. It was in 2012 in the Critical Care, um, it was uh, their July episode. and um, Again, the names, Meta, Bashard, Cahill, Wang, Day, Duggan, and Hayland. Um, but basically, it looked at, um, <laughs> it summarizes with, nutrition delivery is generally inadequate in mechanically ventilated children around the world. Intake of higher percentage of prescribed dietary energy goal via oral feeds was associated with improved 60-day survival. Conversely, alternate nutrition was associated with higher mortality, and they give a litany of rationales um, as to why, which is kind of interesting. Pediatric intensive care units that utilize protocols for the initiation and advancement of oral nourishment intake had a lower prevalence of acquired infection. Optimizing nutrition therapy is a potential avenue for improving clinical outcomes in critically um, ill children. So basically what the article said is the longer these kiddos are in PL, the more likely they are to, um, to tank. And, um, and that's just it. We don't want our kids to be NPO. We right. want them to have the opportunity. We're for not saying all these kids need to be NPO. We're just saying things to consider. Yes. And there's a time and a place. So if you need a feeding tube for a short duration so that the underlying cardiac GI or pulmonary issue can be addressed and the kid can get to a point of healing, then rock the oral. But recognize that there are etiologies beyond our control that means, y'all, they need alternate means temporarily to get them to that place of healing. Yeah, there it is. Okay, we are so over time. I know. Is there anything else that we that we, we didn't cover in um, pulmonary that you want to cover really quick? I don't think so. Okay. All right. So we didn't have time to a day to address neurologic ind indicators for NPO status, um, again, temporarily or permanently. But that's, 
Um, but that's, again, today's overriding takeaway a point. One system impacts the other, and unfortunately, it falls within our scope to say no, and that's okay. Y'all, again, we're in the business of healing, helping, and quality of life, quality of a feed supported by alternate means should be our goal. Not everyone will be able to consume all of their caloric needs orally, and that's okay. Those of us out there in the trenches have the ability to advocate and educate to make what our patients consume orally for it to be as amazing as possible. Also, as an aside, I just want to say thank you to everyone who came out the schedule last week and enjoyed learning alongside a lot of Palmetto State Peets. Special shout out to Deb Brooks of SLP's Wine and Cheese and Faye Murray of Northern Arizona University and Arsha who rocked their presentations. Also, special shout out to Melissa, an amazing registered dietitian with Real Food Blends who brought the, um, she brought her G-tube samples for us all to try. And the beautiful Hillary, SLP guru, guru behind Chatterbugs LLC, who genuinely radiated light throughout the convention. And as an aside, thank you to all of the student volunteers who were there with us from sun up to sunset, um, sweating it out. So hoo-ah to all the SLPs to bees out there. Um, be sure to check everybody out on their Instagram accounts. And um, thank y'all for spreading evidence-based practice, ladies, in the Palmetto State. Erin, um, hang tight, and I'm going to switch this over to questions, okay? Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The Alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. <laughs>